You can turn your Bible to Psalm 24. That's what we'll look at this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Um, and uh, just so you know, at the end of the text that's printed in the bulletin, I've still got the gospel reading responsive uh, reading. So instead of saying the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You say, thanks be to God. That's, I should change that. I think I left it there last week too, so <clears throat> uh, sorry. Anyway, Psalm 24 is um, commonly used in the uh, church, uh, in the church calendar on the day of the Ascension, Ascension Sunday, uh, that um, we celebrate the time when uh, Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he went up into heaven. He was taken up, lifted up into the clouds, lifted up into glory, where he sits at God's right hand now. Uh, a human being gone into God's very presence. It's uh, sort of the picture there that's for the kids to color on the next page. Um, it can be maybe a little bit confusing how this psalm is about the ascension of Jesus Christ in particular, how it's uh, a prophecy of that. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, uh, the significance of the fact that Jesus is the ascended one, uh, how, how it is that he got there, what it means for us, uh, the ascension of Jesus, the King of glory. So we'll talk about that. Let me pray. Then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, you've spoken your word in, um, in great clarity to us, and in many places uh, it's so clear, in many places it's somewhat difficult for us to see what's going on and how it all works together. <clears throat> we pray that you'd be with us, that you'd grant us your Holy Spirit, that he would guide us into all truth, that we would uh, read and listen and consider your word this morning, and we would be shaped by it because of your spirit who works in us to change our minds and our hearts to make us more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so maybe you noticed... Um, how when you're going through there, there's three distinct sections. Maybe they, they seem to be very distinct, even from one another. Uh, you've got verses 1 and 2. Yahweh, the Lord, when it says the Lord in all caps, that's translating God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. Um, uh, not just the word God, and it's not just the word Lord, but when it's all caps like that, it's Yahweh. So uh, verses 1 and 2, talking about how Yahweh, this particular God, owns the world because he made it. And then the next section, 3 through 6, is, is the question, how can you be blessed in Yahweh's presence? How can you get to Yahweh's presence and be blessed there? 
And then verses 7 through 10, you've got the picture of the king of glory entering a city uh, with gates that are otherwise blocking people out, and the gates are being commanded to open up, and you've got the king of glory entering presumably after victory in battle because it's uh, mentioned a few times he's the Lord strong and mighty in battle. Right, so many scholars actually see no real connection between these parts, and some think that um, basically just an editor took a couple different snippets of psalms or poem, uh, poems that maybe David wrote uh, and just sort of slapped them together, slapped together separate psalms and call it good. Hey, it's one good psalm now. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that's a good way for us to read this, to see them as such distinct parts that they really have nothing to do with each other. Even though it may not make much sense when we first read through it, I would, uh, I would go ahead and suggest this, um, this hermeneutic, this way of reading the scriptures to anyone. I would go ahead and assume that it does make sense. I would assume that it does make sense, that it is a cohesive psalm, and um, it'll just maybe take some hard work, some joyful hard work, to figure out uh, what it means. So let's just take it a step at a time. The first two verses are a reference to the creation account in Genesis 1. So many places in the scriptures that are a reference to the creation account in Genesis 1. We could probably talk about it every Sunday. But basically it's that Yahweh owns the world... Because he made it. That's a super simplification of it. It is more than a simple statement of ownership. It's, it's saying more than just that. There are larger themes being hinted at here. So you've got in verse 1, <clears throat> the earth and all that fills it. Two things. Two distinct things. The earth and all that fills it. He says it again, the world and those who dwell in it. So the structure of Genesis 1 is like that. Structure of Genesis 1 as an account of God's creation shows something important about God's creation. First, it says that the earth was formless, it was shapeless, it didn't really exist, and it was void, it was empty. And so, first, God made the heavens and the earth. That's what you get in the first three days of the creation account. He made the the heavens and the earth, and then He filled them with a host of creatures, which you get in the the days 4, 5, and 6. He filled these empty places that he had created. He filled them with forests and uh, fishes and finches and frogs and ferrets and friends. Um, filled them all up. <clears throat> the, things, the, the places that he had made, he filled them all up with creatures. So at the very first, you get the, um, the picture that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this is how God made the earth. He brought it out of the waters. That's what it's... That's the picture that you've given all throughout Genesis 1 as he was making the earth, the dry ground, to the place where people can be and stand with firm footing. Uh, He brought it out of the waters. So the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, and he says that he brought all the waters together, and you get the picture that the the earth rose out of these waters that were all being brought together into the seas. So it says in verse 2 of our psalm, he has founded it upon the seas. And established it upon the rivers. It's a picture of, he brings order out of chaos. The seas are chaos. I know you've stood on the beach. Maybe it's even better on a stormy day. You look out at sea and you're like, that is tumultuous. That's chaotic. That's terrifying. And it's vast. So he brings order out of stuff like that. He brings order out of chaos. He brought high places out of the low brought safe places out of the dangerous places. He brought mountains 
out of the seas, firm footing out of the fluid. There's no firm footing in the ocean. Not for regular human beings, anyway. <clears throat> One commentator said that, uh, he sort of boils it down, he says, Yahweh's power over the waters and the seas is considered the basic idea of Israelite religion. Go home and think about that for a while. Trace that idea through the scriptures. Yahweh's power over the waters is considered the basic idea of Israelite religion. So, out of the treacherous, inhospitable waters, Yahweh, the one true God, brought the earth, and he made it to be a dwelling place. Not just a place, abstractly, a place for dwelling, especially for real humanity created in his image. That's what he made the earth for. It's for people like us to live there and dwell in it and, and fill it up and be with each other and be with him. So right there in the beginning, Genesis 1, you have the root of all the biblical imagery of God's people, his special possession, living with him in the land, dwelling with him on the high mountain or the holy hill, far above all the raging seas below, well out of the tsunami danger zone, um, and just as a side note that I, I think we've mentioned before, the, the raging seas throughout the scriptures are like a metaphor, it's like a symbol for the rebellious Gentile nations, all the people who are up in arms against God. So maybe you can start to see now how the first section ties into and leads into the second section. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord is that place that he's made. He's like scooped it out of the waters and formed a mountain place for people to dwell with him. He's made it with the intention of filling it with friends that he will bless. It was his idea. It was his initiative. That's his plan for the world. And the hill of the Lord is <clears throat> representative of that, that holy place, that most holy place where God dwells with his people. So... What kind of person goes there? What kind of person ascends to where God is and, and remains there and dwells there, stands there, is able to stand in God's presence, the holy, the holy God in his presence, blessed and vindicated and justified, declared righteous? What kind of person ascends to where God is and is able to stand in his holy place? And the answer is... The perfect human being. The perfect human being who reflects God's image. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Who does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness, vindication, justification. From the God of his salvation. So what kind of person ascends to God's presence and lives there, dwells with him? And abides there and lives there in blessing. The person who is innocent in everything he does. Clean hands. Innocent in all of his actions. The person whose heart motives are pure and clear and pristine all the way down. The person who lifts up his soul in devotion only to the one true God. Never to false gods. The person who always speaks the truth in love to others. Never swear, swears deceitfully. Never seeks to mislead. To gain advantage over somebody by not speaking the truth. <clears throat> That's the person who reflects the image of God. That's the person who will dwell uh, with God on high 
forever. Jesus put it the same way in his Beatitudes. Beatitudes are the declarations of blessing, blessedness, what it looks like to be blessed. And he says in uh, Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, that same language, for they shall see God. That's the big payoff, right? See God. To see God. Seeing God is risky business for sinners. Those who have impure hearts and, and do unclean things and lift up their souls to what is false and, um, and mislead their, their neighbors. Seeing God is risky business for people like us. As the meme says, one does not simply ascend the hill of the Lord. It is folly. Uh, it, it seems to be a basic assumption of people throughout the scriptures that the impure, that the sinners will not survive encounters with the holy God. And if they happen to see God, then they're undone. And they say things like, woe is me, Isaiah says, for I've seen the Lord I've seen his glory. They're undone and they fear the worst. So a great example of this, and one that I think really ties in with the language of our uh, psalm, is in the life of Jacob, Genesis 32. It says that Jacob was alone one night, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Israel basically means one who wrestles with God. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which is a word that sounds like the Hebrew word for face. And this is why Jacob named it that place, because he said, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So once Jacob realized that he had seen God's face in this man, once he realized that, he was astonished at the fact that he survived the encounter, that he was still alive. Astonished at the mercy and the blessing. Jacob fought a man who turned out to be God. And not only did this God-man let Jacob live, the God-man condescended to allow Jacob to prevail over him. We know he condescended, right? You know he let Jacob win because it only took one touch to dislocate his hip. Or he could have tag-teamed out with 12 legions of angels if he wanted. He's God, right? So you know he let him win. And Jacob only recognized that he had seen the face of God in this man after God had already thrown the match and renamed Jacob the lightweight wrestling champion of the world, basically. (laughs) He blessed him and he renamed him. He said, you've prevailed. Apparently, there will be others also who, like Jacob, 
see God's face and live. Who ascend the hill of the Lord, who receive his blessing, who receive his justification. Even though we are unclean and impure sinners, such is the generation, it says in verse 6 of our psalm, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of a God of Jacob, Jacob's God. Who will live with God forever in the place that he has made for his friends to live with him and be blessed by him? Those who seek the face of the God that Jacob failed to recognize at first. The face of the God that Jacob failed to recognize at first. And that's actually a huge theme throughout the scriptures in different cases. And it seems to be the case in the third section of Psalm 24, that lack of recognition. Seeking the face of the God that nobody recognizes at first. The cry go, goes out to open the gates. I think the, probably the best I, uh, understanding for us is that these are the gates of the city of heaven. The cry goes out to open those gates for the king of glory himself, but there seems to be confusion and lack of recognition. I don't think it's just a nice way to have a responsive reading. I think it's saying something. Who is this king of glory? We don't recognize him. Who is it? In Genesis 42, Joseph, who had risen to power in Egypt, he was basically the king of the world. He recognized his brothers who had sold him into slavery, but they didn't recognize him. In Job chapter 2, the righteous sufferer, his friends didn't recognize him. Those friends basically just went on to make things worse for him. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said people didn't recognize John the Baptist for who he was. And so they just did whatever they, they pleased and they killed him. So why is this such a big theme in the scriptures, this lack of recognition? And here in Psalm 24, here's what I think. Jacob didn't recognize God at first. The God of Jacob, Jacob didn't recognize at first because he was just a man throwing a fight. That's all he was. Just a man throwing a fight. Would you recognize God in the man throwing a fight? Would you say, obviously that's Yahweh, the one true God, strong and mighty in battle? Would you see the man with the purple swollen face bleeding everywhere, executed like a common criminal, and say, that's the Lord, the King of glory, open the gates to him? But that's who God is. He's the man throwing the fight. He's the one who is glorious in his condescension. He's the one who wins by losing. And we don't recognize him, even though he's made that clear all along, that that's who he'd be. I'm going to be the one you don't recognize. You're not going to see it coming. He said in Isaiah 52, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And a few verses later in chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't what we were expecting. When, his, when, he, when he came, his own people didn't receive him, they laughed at him and killed him for claiming to be God. 
He's obviously not. John 20, after his resurrection, after his resurrection, his friend Mary didn't recognize him. His disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 didn't recognize him. It's a big theme. We don't recognize him because we're looking for something else. We're dead set on thinking God is going to be like something other than that, not the man throwing the fight. We're looking for a different kind of power, a different kind of strength, a different kind of might. But the God-man, when he comes into the world, he looks like a homeless guy starving in the desert for 40 days. Would you look at that guy and say, that's Yahweh, he's the king of glory. The God-man throws the match, and he names his opponents the victor. His strength, his authority, his power is of a different kind. It looks like letting sinners crucify him so that he can give every ounce of his life and love for them to bless them, so that he can forgive them and secure their welcome in God's holy place. Nobody else would have done it, but he did it because he's the Lord and he's the perfect human being. The question earlier in Psalm 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? It's kind of a trick question. And it makes this whole psalm a, a hint, really, to the incarnation of the Son of God. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? Well, open the gates, because the King of Glory is coming in. Who is this King of Glory? Yahweh. He's the King of Glory. And then it says, Selah, which I just can't help but hearing, Booyah. When I read that, it isn't very good scholarship, but it feels right. Who belongs in God's presence? Only the God-man. Booyah. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, <clears throat> and those who seek his unrecognizable face, they also are welcome. Those who seek the unrecognizable face, the face of the God-man, who threw the match, the God of Jacob, those who seek his face, they, they win together with him with the the one who wins by losing. So Paul picks up on this theme in Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages, talking about Jesus saying that being God, because he is the God that he is, not in spite of being God, but because he is this God, being God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he went even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the worst. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even in those raging seas. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, The God who stooped to become a man, who deigned even to be marred beyond human semblance, who certainly didn't look majestic or beautiful after we were done with him, he's the king of glory. Like he taught us in John's gospel, his glory wasn't just a reward for the hard work that he put in of suffering and dying on the cross, that inglorious bit glorified after No, Jesus said, 
his glory included, began with the hour of his death on the cross. He is glorious in his humility, in his condescension, in his self-sacrificial love. That's, that's when he's most glorious. In his willingness even to go unrecognized while he threw the match. It even astounded the angels in heaven, which I, I do think that Psalm 24 is sort of this picture of the angels in heaven at the gates um, being confused about who it is that's approaching. And Justin Martyr said that a long time ago in his dialogue with Trifo about the end of this psalm. He said, When our Christ arose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the rulers in heaven, chosen by God, were ordered to open the gates of heaven that the King of glory might enter. Now, when these rulers in heaven saw that he was in appearance without beauty, honor, or glory, and not recognizing him, they asked, Who is this King of glory? And the Holy Spirit answered, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. It really is him. Jesus has ascended into heaven where the gates have now been thrown open to welcome him. And not just to welcome him, but all who come in his name. And John, when he has this vision of the heavenly city coming down to earth, the new heavens and the new earth, that that great city, the new Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, he says of the heavenly city that, its gates will never be shut. Not ever again. In his own risen body, Yahweh, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, has carried our humanity. And Paul says he's carried it far above all the heavens. The heavens can't contain his glory. He's carried our humanity even to God, to be with God in true blessedness forever. So, Garrett Dawson um, has uh, one of my favorite books, Jesus Ascended. Um, It's a little paperback. You can buy it for almost $60 now. I don't know why it's so expensive, and I wish that he would um, maybe think about putting it out on Kindle. (laughs) But uh, Jesus Ascended, and he's talking about this, this Ascension Day psalm. He says, The Ascension was surprisingly different from any worldly victor's parade. We've all got in our minds these pictures of great earthly kings coming home after they've been victorious in battle and war and they're leading captives home and everybody's throwing confetti and it's just great, right? Uh, We've got pictures of this, but his ascension is surprisingly different. For Jesus did not break the bruised reed of our humanity. Our humanity was set in enmity against him. He didn't just crush it and roll over it in a show of domination, a show of force. He didn't break the bruised reed of our humanity. He repaired it. The ascension in the flesh assures us that he eternally condescends to be bone of our bone, knitted to us in the most intimate union. He's taken our flesh, and he will never, he'll never reject it. He'll never go without our flesh again. His conquest does not deprive us, but enriches us. It does not humiliate us, but ennobles us. It's good to be the enemies who have been conquered by this king of glory. The king of glory mends us. The king of glory makes us whole. What does that mean? What does that look like, being 
made whole. It means being restored and renewed in God's image. Being made like God, like the King of glory, like God in the flesh. Looks like becoming more like Jesus himself, which is exactly Paul's point in Philippians 2 when he's talking about this great condescension of God, the great humility even to the point of death on the cross, the glory of that God. Paul says, you know Jesus who's, who's God and who condescended? Live with that same humble mindset toward each other. That's what, that's what that chapter's about. Live with the same humble mindset toward each other that Jesus had toward you. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be willing to go unrecognized. Be willing to lose so that others can flourish. Just like the King of Glory has done. Be willing to forgive each other like the King of Glory has done. Be willing to suffer for love's sake like the King of Glory has done. Be like David. Here's a, another passage that you can go home and read and pick up these themes uh, from 2 Samuel 6. Be like David who he brought the ark of the presence of Yahweh up to Zion, to the tent that he'd prepared for it. <clears throat> and the whole way he's dancing like a fool for joy in his skivvies. Right? And, uh, and he's mocked by his wife. He's mocked by his wife for his impropriety. What did he say to her? He said, I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this. I'll be abased in your eyes. Yet I'll be held in honor by others who are meek and lowly servants. Again, as the King of Glory himself put it in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So come to God's holy place that he's made for friendship, for fellowship with himself, for blessing. Come to God's holy place in the name of the unrecognizable God-man. And trust that the unrecognizable God-man has thrown the match for you in order to bless you. And love his particular kind of glory, his peculiar kind of glory. Love that. And reflect it in your life. And you shall inherit the earth which Yahweh possesses. He'll give it to you because he already made it as a place for his friends to dwell with him forever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we know that when we uh, come to the Scriptures, we can easily um, just sort of glaze over and not understand who you are, not recognize your glory, not realize that when we're seeing Jesus in all of his meekness and humility and even in his death, that we're actually seeing God and we're seeing your very glory. We pray that the spirit of glory would dwell in our hearts and renew our minds so that we'd be able to, to perceive your glory, your kind of glory, that we would see the king of glory, that we would praise him, give him all laud and honor for who he is and what he's done. We thank you that uh, your glory does not destroy us or exclude us, but that your glory welcomes and invites us, even at great cost to yourself. We thank you for... Um, for this image of you as the King of glory, we pray that you would make it more real to us, uh, not just for our own sake, but in our lives, um, so we would be able to reflect the kind of glory that, that you have, that you possess, that is yours. 
as we go forth from here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.